You know, when Tim said stealing is taking a cookie that belongs to you, I, I thought to myself, I'm glad he didn't say uh, that um, stealing is sneaking your wife's lemon heads, uh, as I have been doing. But then he called me a sinner anyway, so <laughs> I, I am guilty. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, as we have opened and read this uh, mighty psalm, Psalm 85, I ask that you would be our teacher this morning. Lord, I ask that you would, through um, this passage of Scripture, give us a... a, um, a thirst for you that cannot be assuaged. Lord, give us an, uh, a humble honesty to look at our sin and encourage our hearts that you will not let us go, but will draw us to yourself, that you will fellowship with us. For you tell us um, in uh, verse 9, Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. So give us a fear of you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Typically, I take requests for psalms uh, and preach a psalm at the end of the month. Uh, but this morning, I did the choosing. I chose Psalm 85. I have long been intrigued by this psalm. Uh, and for two reasons. Uh, first, verse 13 teaches um, the gospel in a... I'm sorry, not verse 13. Uh, verse 10 um, teaches the gospel in such a powerful way. Uh, the, the, listen to verse 10. It says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and, pit and peace kiss each other. Uh, God's righteousness, His utter purity and holiness is the reason why we need salvation. Uh, we are sinners. We are unrighteous. Or as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, None is righteous. No, not one. God is so righteous that it is impossible uh, for us to stand in His presence. But God so loved sinners that He sent His own beloved Son into our world to be the Lamb of God who would offer Himself as the atoning sacrifice in our place. Jesus lived a perfect, a sinless life in our stead and died an awful death in our place. He even endured the wrath of God uh, while He was on the cross in order that uh, our, the wrath due unto us might be removed because He paid it all. By His death and subsequent resurrection, 
He paid the full penalty of our sins, and then He supplied His own righteousness to be our own. Through Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled to God, having been redeemed by His blood. As Paul says in Romans 5, verse 1, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 10, where it says, Righteousness and peace kiss, that could only happen through our Lord Jesus Christ. Righteousness and peace, God's righteousness and our peace with Him could not come together were it not for the, our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful gospel-saturated phrase? In Jesus Christ, righteousness uh, and peace do not just meet in the middle and shake hands. They kiss each other. There's, in other words, there's no reluctance on God's part to embrace us. His righteousness does not cause Him to recoil against our sins. His holiness and justice does not cause Him to destroy us. Rather, He sent His Son, His own beloved Son, to satisfy His justice so that He can embrace us and kiss us in peace. So that's the first reason why I've always been intrigued with this psalm. The second reason I've been intrigued with this psalm is its prayer for revival. Look with me at verses uh, 4 through 6. The scripture says, Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Spurgeon says of this psalm, It is the prayer of a patriot for his afflicted country, which he pleads the Lord's former mercies and by faith foresees brighter days. Our nation, our afflicted nation needs reviving, doesn't it? Our country needs Almighty God and His gospel. Many are wondering how uh, things can get any worse. And yet daily, it seems as if we find a way to make things worse. May God revive us again. You know, I was all prepared to speak this morning about what Jesus Christ has done for us in securing peace with God and to speak uh, about what God needs to do for our country. But I had a nagging memory that uh, one of my uh, former uh, teachers, uh, Dr. Krabendam, uh had spoken on Psalm one or Psalm eighty five or had written on it. So I uh, went to searching his writings. Uh, he's emailed me his writings um, as he's writing different books that he has yet to publish. And I found where he addressed Psalm eighty five. Uh, in it he focuses on the need for the church to be revived rather than the lost and rebellious world. 
In fact, he says that a revival in evangelism or an evangelistic revival must be, listen, it must be preceded by a revival of the church. Unless the church is revived, unless the church is near to its God and seeking its God, then of course the church is not going to be uh, effective in going and uh, winning the lost. So as I considered his remarks on Psalm 85, I became, it, this psalm became deeply personal to me. Uh, instead of thinking about what Jesus has done for, for sinners in general 2,000 years ago on the cross, I began to think about how Jesus reconciled a sinner like myself to a righteous God and what that meant. Instead of thinking about how our nation needs to be revived, I began to ponder how I need to be revived. So I plan on approaching Psalm 85 this morning uh, from the more personal standpoint After all, the psalmist says in verse 4, Restore us again. Uh, He asked, Will you be angry with us forever? And so he does seem to be talking about God's people who need to be revived, about his church that needs to be restored unto himself. So if your experience of um, of Psalm 85 is anything like mine uh, and what uh, I have experienced as I've studied this psalm. Um, this might be a painful um, psalm uh, for you to consider because revival only comes as you walk through the doorway of repentance. Uh, the first thing we see here in Psalm 85 is that the psalmist is recounting what God has done for his people in the past. And so the psalmist is not pining after bygone days, you know, oh, I wish I was as close to the Lord, I wish I was as zealous to the Lord as uh, when I first became a Christian, or I wish that... that uh, that the people of God were as close to the Lord uh, as they were during the days of Josiah or whatever. He's not pining after past or bygone days. Rather, he's reminding God of his mercy to his people in the past. And he's doing this as an argument to God, saying, God, you did it in the past. We are really rebellious now in this generation. We need you to do it again. We're desperate for you to do it again. You know, a lot of prayers are the pleading with God is building an argument from the Scriptures. Building an argument from God's promises. God, you promised to do this. God, you sent Jesus to do this. Fulfill your promises in my life. Fulfill your promises in our church. Fulfill your promises in our day and age. And so, um, 
Israel was wicked in the past, but God withdrew all His wrath and turned from His, from his hot anger in order that He might forgive all their sin. Look closely at verses 1 through 3. Lord, You were favorable to Your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of Your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all Your wrath. You turned from Your hot anger. So his argument is, God's faithfulness in the past then is the foundation for the psalmist's contention that God should restore them again in verses 4 through 6. You know, God indeed did restore His people in spite of Israel's continued sin and rebellion. God did put away His anger and His indignation toward His people. God restored them briefly under King Josiah. Um, There was a a mini-revival that took place uh, in their nation. And again, when uh, Judah returned from exile, there was a mini-revival. But the great revival, the revival that overshadows all of them, the great revival that gives us hope that we can have revival, took place um, on the day of Pentecost. We learn about it in Acts chapter 2. And I believe that this prayer in Psalm 85 verses 4 through 6, although it is a prayer for the many revivals that popped up in Israel's uh, history, it points forward to that great revival when God, when the Lord Jesus Christ poured out His Spirit on the church. It cuts across centuries of Israelite history and finds its fulfillment in Acts chapter 2. In fact, I'm going to go a bit further. During the, the weeks that the 120 first believers uh, were gathered together in that upper room and in uh, Acts chapter 1 and 2, uh, I believe their prayers were for national and for personal repentance in the same manner that the, the Old Testament uh, saints prayed for revival. When they prayed for revival, it was first of all a deep and humbling prayer for repentance. Listen to Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned and done what is wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules. We have not listened to Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. 
as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, to those who are near and to those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. And I had to cut it off because it it continued for the rest of the chapter. Or Nehemiah, uh, verses 4 through 9. Nehemiah 1, verses 4 through 9. Nehemiah says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And again, I had to cut this prayer short. He goes on confessing sin uh, and then... uh, Flipping the coin and talking about God's faithfulness and His promises. Confessing His sin. Going back and forth. uh, Withholding nothing that He or His country has done in rebelling against God. And then Ezra. uh, Chapter 9, verses 3 through 9. This is one of the the most compelling of of all the prayers in the Bible. And again, I cut it short. But... uh, Ezra. And what was happening here was the people, the the children of the people, even the children of the rulers, were intermarrying with unbelievers. And Ezra was just cut to the heart. He was devastated. People had just returned from exile, beginning to get settled. And the people... Are sinning against their God in a very grievous way. So Ezra 9, verses 3 through 9, Ezra says, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered round me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting with my garment and torn cloak and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, 
we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within His holy place that God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And he goes on. Again, the same movement. Lord, we have sinned. Lord, you are gracious and have promised to return to us again. You know, we don't hear these types of prayers too often. But here they are in the Bible. I would commend them to you as a guide, as you are confessing your sins, as you are spending time before the Lord in repentance. Take these prayers, phrase by phrase, break them down, apply them to your heart, talk to God about them. It's clear that all three of these prayers arose from an intolerable and unrelenting burden as they were grieving their guilt. Daniel, Nehemiah, Ezra, they were utterly horrified by their own sin and the sin of their people. They knew that they deserved nothing from God but judgment, indignation, hot anger and wrath. It was clear to them that God should rightly, He should justly turn His back on His people. But two things drove them into desperation, into desperate prayer. God's promise of mercy and their relentless hunger to be in God's presence and rejoice in His salvation. You know, when you're looking at your sin, it can be devastating. When you are honest about what you have done and then realize there's even depths that you've not yet begun to plumb. You realize your hypocrisy. You realize your rebellion. It can be very discouraging. And so, all of these three men in their prayers, you can also see the promises of God. But it wasn't just the promises of God. Oh, we've got promises and so we're going to sit here uh, fat, dumb, and happy because God's going to cause His promises to, to be fulfilled. No, they not only had the promises, but they also had this um, relentless hunger to be in God's presence and to rejoice in His salvation. They had the promise and they wanted God. Those two things drove them to find God, even though their sins rose above their heads, even though their iniquities rose up to heaven itself. 
Although Psalm 85 lacks the raw emotion that we saw in Daniel's prayer and Nathaniel's prayer and Ezra's prayer, the same elements are present in the psalmist's prayer in verses 4 through 6. He says, Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? See that desire? They want to rejoice in God. God has promised, verses 1 through 3, or He has done in the past and He has promised to do in the future, to restore, to revive His people. And so the psalmist Praise as he does. Let me ask you, are you a stranger to prayers such as this? Their prayers were driven by three things. I've already mentioned them. An abject horror of their sins, the merciful and faithful promises of God, and their stubborn desire to live their lives in fellowship with their Heavenly Father. Your Christian life will be severely stunted if any one of these things are absent in your life. You know, these are not the prayers of super-Christians. These three things that I listed are not for the super-elite believers. This is a description of the normal Christian life when sin overtakes us and we go to God in repentance. Sometimes we might be more subdued in our prayers like the psalmist. Other times our prayers might take on a a more desperate uh, um, mode depending on how deeply seated our sins are in our soul. The pattern outlined in Psalm 85 is that personal or corporate revival that only followers... um, I'm sorry, that only follows prayers of repentance rooted in the promise of God in Christ that He will return to His people. I, I made that sentence a bit too long. Let me break that down. Psalm 85 gives us a pattern for revival, um, for corporate v- revival. Revive us again, O Lord, whether it be a nation whether it be a church, whether it be a family. But it also um, can have a personal application. Revive me again, O Lord. And so this Psalm 85 gives us um, a pattern. Revival only comes after prayer. The psalmist is asking God, really in verses uh, 1 through 7, God, revive us again. Uh, The revival that the promise, I'm sorry, that the psalmist is pleading is not for exceptional or rare revival, but rather, I'm contending, should be our normal experience. Uh, verse 7, and I, I want you to really look at verse 7. I think, I think this is important. Verse 7 equates the revival he is praying for um, 
in verses 4 through 6 with salvation. There's a tendency to look at uh, revival as something that comes maybe once a century. It might uh, burn brightly for a while, but then it's going to fade away and stay underground until maybe a century or more. And I am contending that the revival that uh, the psalmist is praying for is a normal Christian sanctification. So as he's praying, verse 6 goes into verse 7. Well, I'll start with verse 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I think that verses uh, 4 through 6 are simply the outworkings of biblical sanctification in a person's life. Um, rather than the very rare revival fires. But if we can see that the revival fires should be the experience of every Christian because it's simply the outworking of biblical sanctification because the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us, then it becomes clear that revival is the pivotal engine that empowers everyone that empowers everything in the church and sets everyone and everything in motion. Can you see this, or you can see this pattern in Romans uh, chapter 12, you know, verse 1. Paul exhorts us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds by the Word of God rather than being conformed to. Uh, to, to the pattern of the world. And this renewal of the mind then sets in motion the use of spiritual gifts uh, in uh, verses, well, I think, 3 through 5 or so. It, uh, it sets in motion the true love that he speaks of in Romans chapter 12, the patience in suffering that he speaks of. We could go on into chapter 13, 14, and 15. The renewal of the mind sets in motion the proper working of the church. The, the ongoing repentance, the pursuit after God is the engine by which we as Christians grow in our grace, grow in the, the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we use this word revival and we've attached so many different things to it, but I'm saying it is a picture of what should be the ongoing experience of a Christian. So I think this revival that he's talking about, that he's praying for, should be the engine in your life, in the life of your church as well. Why is personal and church-wide revival so intermittent then, if it's supposed to be the normal? Well, if revival is simply the outworking of biblical sanctification, why aren't we why are we not experiencing it on an ongoing basis? Or to broaden the perspective for a mo- for a moment, why is the church in America so anemic and weak? Well, I think verse 8 gives us the reason. Verse 8 says, 
let me hear what God the Lord will speak. So he's been praying, now he's going to be silent. Let me hear God's response. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Folly is the reason why revival is so intermittent. God is not stingy with His grace or reticent in fulfilling His promises. Rather, we are quick to run into folly and slow to run from it. Spurgeon says, It is not that God needs turning from His anger so much as that we need turning from our sin. Here is the hinge of the whole matter. I think Spurgeon hits the painful mark with this comment. Falling into the folly of sin and then being slow to repent of it stalls the engine of sanctification in our life. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 says that we can indeed grieve the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5.19 says that we can quench the Spirit. How do we quench the Spirit? How do we grieve the Spirit? By returning to and being slow to leave our folly. Sin is deceitful. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13 says, We are to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This hardening stunts our spiritual growth and vitality. The mighty church in Ephesus had fallen prey to this folly. Even though they were strong in other areas, they had a serious area of folly or of sin that they were not repenting of. And listen to what Jesus told them in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Jesus said, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. When we as individuals or as a church get stuck in folly, it's real tempting to... um, short-circuit the, the process of, of repentance by focusing on our strengths. Look at what we're doing so well so that everybody's looking here and not looking here. We do the same thing in our own lives. We even do it to ourselves. Boy, I'm doing my Bible reading right now. And you ignore these other areas where... As Tim was teaching us, you're either breaking the law of God or you're not doing those things that God has told you to do. I'm going to draw this sermon to a close. Uh, I am likely to return to this psalm in the future because I have only scratched the surface. Uh, Only scratched the surface in the exposition. Only uh, scratched the surface... Uh, in so many areas of my own folly, that I think I'm going to keep this psalm in my um, purview for quite some time. This is a hard sermon. It's a hard psalm when you realize that your folly, not God's reticence to be gracious, 
is stalling your spiritual life. That repentance is needed. That the prayers, the deeply humbling prayers of repentance, coupled with the gracious promises of God, um, are, are so necessary. I want to leave you with an encouragement. We didn't get to look at verses 9 through 13. And so, 9 through 13 is the psalmist's confidence that God will return to His people. We actually did look at verse 10 uh, in, in great detail as we talked about righteousness and peace kissing each other. But I want to simply um, read from Psalm 9 through 11 in closing because it's a great uh, exhortation or a great encouragement for us that the, God's people, when they fear Him, will turn back from pursuing their, follow, their, their folly. Verse 9, Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground like a seed that is budding. And righteousness looks down from the sky like a a cloud pregnant with rain, ready to to water that seed so that seed can grow up strong and be a fruitful plant. So faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, as we consider our folly, as we um, consider Your promises, as we consider and measure uh, our true love for You or lack thereof, We are so encouraged in how this psalm ends with this this encouragement that you will bring us forward, that you will sanctify us, that you will make us more and more like Jesus Christ our Lord. Do it, Lord. We ask, revive us again. Restore us, we ask. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.